This podcast contains audio from the October 1 mass shooting on the Las Vegas Strip. Listener discretion is advised. On part two of Critical Condition. We had her in the back and uh, she's bleeding heavily and, and Frank is talking to her. He's yelling at her to, to stay with him and to fight. And he's at the same time yelling at us to go faster. We got a gunshot wound to the head in the back. Get over here. Grab her, grab her, grab her. You know, we had to drop her off the hospital not knowing who she was at the time and go right back to go right back to work. My roommate is there. I don't know if she's okay. I left my phone at the station. About that time, I saw Officer Richard Cole. He um, he lent me his phone. I was able to call my mom to talk to my brother to get Anna's phone number and call Anna. Anna, are you okay? I'm Shay Johnson, a reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. This is part three of Critical Condition, a five-part series sharing the stories of two Las Vegas police officers, a woman in dire straits, and the October night when their lives intersected. Hi, Anna. Hi, Shay. Can you see me? This is Anna Childs, who was living with Officer Richard Cole in October of 2017. So I actually met him through my best friend, Tiffany. Um, She had known him for a while. And then when Rich bought his house, he told her that he was looking for a roommate. And I just so happened to be looking for a roommate as well. So um, just met up with him at his house and... He seemed really cool, and then so I decided to move in with him, and we've been really good friends ever since. Sure. On that night, how long had you guys been living together? That's a good question. I want to say maybe about two years. Okay, gotcha. And so there's this, you know, obviously the festival, you've purchased tickets. Did you, were you going with a group of friends or? So actually, um, I didn't buy my tickets. I had won them at um, Losers, a bar in the MGM. So they were doing a raffle, and I won a three-day VIP pass for me and one other person. So um, I gave away my tickets to my friend Ariel the first night, and then I went the last two nights. And on the third night, I brought my friend Megan with me. Okay. Did you um, do you remember you know leading up to the festival that day if you had spoken with Richard at all or had any conversation with him? You know, I, I don't. I don't really remember what like our interaction was before, sure. but he was, um, I think at this time he was still working like later shifts. So, um, I mean, we would hang out on his nights off, but typically it would be him working at night and then like sleeping in the day and my work schedule was kind of different. So yeah, we probably didn't have too much interaction that day just based on our work schedules. 
While Richard was preparing to work an overnight shift with his trainee, Brandon Ingstrom, Anna was having fun at the Route 91 Harvest Festival with her friend Megan. This was the third day of the festival and my second day being at it. Um, and me and Megan, I mean, we're not huge country fans, but I mean, we like it enough to go to have gone <laughs> to the festival. Um, and it was cool because we just, we had, you know, we had our VIP VIP tickets. So we were just hanging out in the VIP lounge uh, area, just watching the shows. Nothing, nothing really crazy, just hanging out, watching the concerts from afar. By 10.05 p.m., country music star Jason Aldean had been on the stage for less than half an hour. About that time, during that performance, a barrage of gunfire sprayed down onto the festival grounds. I had actually left right before all that went down, and I went to the Mandalay Bay. Um, so we left during Big and Rich, which what were the performers right before Jason Aldean, um, just because we had been there all day and we were tired and I was hungry and I had worked at Red Square, which was right in the Mandalay Bay across the street. So I was like, let's go to Mandalay Bay, you know, grab a bite to eat, see some of my friends. So we did that and we were there for probably about 45 minutes and then Megan decides to Uber home. And as she's Ubering home, she just notices all this chaos and she sends me a text. Anna's friend Megan tells her something has happened, that she needs to get out of there right away. And I just was, I was just was kind of confused. And then people started getting, you know, all types of texts and calls. Um, and then you could just see kind of like people like running from like towards the parking garage past Madeleine Bay, uh, like Red Square. Um, and so the next thing, you know, people are saying active shooter, active shooter. Um, so, um, some people ran to the front doors of the restaurant and just closed it, locked it, closed the curtains over the windows. And we were barricaded in red square for the rest of the night. Do you have any idea of what's going on at this point? I mean, over time, do you sort of learn tidbits of things here and there, or is it sort of just this confusion of we need to stay barricaded, but I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion. Nobody knew what was going on. It was just, but you could just tell there was a sense of panic in the area. And, you know, we, everybody kind of just thought the best course of action was to barricade ourselves in to Red Square in case there was, you know, an active shooter out on the casino floor or whatever the case could have been. Anna's decision to leave the festival early put her out of harm's way. It was really obviously the whole situation was terrifying and it's just so crazy to think, you know, what could, what could have happened, you know, to me, I was very, very fortunate and it's kind of just like, it gave me a new sense of appreciation for life. And I, I'm also just really grateful that I was able to avoid witnessing all of that devastation that went on. You know, I know people's sense of security and psychological health have, you know, been compromised or scarred for potentially forever. So yeah, I'm definitely very, very thankful that I, you know, chose to leave early. 
not long after the shooting starts, we know that Richard and his partner Brandon, who's been on the job for two days at that point, is and is in training. Mm-hmm. They run into this woman, Giovanna, and her husband, and you know, speed them to University Medical Center. Right. But when the when Richard gets back to command station, one thing that we know now is that he was frantically trying to get a hold of you, but he had left his phone at the station and really didn't have a way to to get you know a hold of you at least immediately. Um, right. Did you know before he finally reached you that he may be trying to get in touch, or were you thinking about what he was doing? Was any of that stuff running through your mind? I mean, I was texting him. You know, what's going on? Are you okay? But there was just there was just so much confusion. I mean, at this point, we did not. No one understood the severity of the situation. Um, you know, so obviously, I mean, I was worried. I was worried for him. I was worried for myself. I was worried for the people in, you know, who, who were still at the festival, people who were in the casino. Um, you know, at this, at this time I was working in a nightclub and, um, on our group chat, people were saying, Oh, there's active shooters all over the strip. Um, people, people were saying that they were, uh, hearing gunshots, even though they were like in Caesar's palace or just across the city, it was just complete chaos and confusion. Um, so I had, you know, I had texted him, but I was also trying to respond to a whole bunch of other texts of people, you know, just trying to figure out where I was, what was going on, and, you know, vice versa. By this time, Richard and Brandon had responded to the festival scene and driven to UMC Trauma with Giovanna Casadillas, whom you may recall as the 30-year-old woman who had been shot in the head. As they drove back out to the law enforcement staging area near the festival grounds, Richard remembered Anna was at the festival that night and realized that he didn't have his phone on him. At the staging area, Richard met George Gafford, who works with Metro's Police Employee Assistance Program. George helped him track down Anna's phone number, and Richard called her from a substation landline. I pick up my phone and he's just like, Anna, where are you? Are you okay? Anna? Are you okay? It's Richard. Tell him that you're okay. I'm, don't worry about it. You're okay, where are you? I was like, I'm fine. I'm in Red Square and we've like barricaded the room. You're in Red Square? I was like, what's going on? He's like, there, there's been a shooting. And I remember, you know, asking him, uh, you know, how bad is it? And he was just like, it's, it's pretty bad, Anna. Um, he's like, but just stay, stay in Red Square. Hey, stay quiet. Stay in the back. Barricade the doors with whatever you can. Stay barricaded. Somebody will come and get you. Oh, my God. Anna, thank God. I've been so worried about you. And that was about that whole conversation. What did the rest of the night look like for you after that? Um, so after that, we were stuck in Red Square for a few hours. Um, you know, management was telling us that, you know, either Metro or security was going to come and uh, remove everybody from the restaurants, you know, restaurant by restaurant. So we waited. And then finally, a couple of security guards came um, and they took everybody to um, the Michael Jackson Theater like waiting area. Um, so they had kind of just put everybody over there. 
Um, and then around 4 a.m., so after waiting there for an hour, I was able to uh, leave and walk back. To, I walked back to my car, which was parked at the Luxor. Anna was safe. And that's all Richard needed to hear. Let me go back to work, man. That's all I needed. That was that was okay. I'm good. I'm alive. My friends are alive. Um, it's time to go back to work. Here's George Gafford, the Metro employee who helped Richard get a hold of Anna. After he made that call and he talked to her and he realized she was okay, he was quite relieved. And what was most remarkable to me was he was ready to get back in the game. Richard and Brandon still had work to do, but they were not the only ones. My night took a turn, and they said, we want you to go down to headquarters, and we want you to set up a victim center. And I said, okay. So I hopped in my car, drove down to headquarters. We had a a room, I want to say in Building B. I think it was in Building B. And, And I get there, and I go... Okay, who's in charge here? <laughs> Everybody looks, you are. George was in charge of establishing a center where families of victims could go to get information in the hours after the shooting. So we put together a victim center. Uh, they provided us with officers. We set up, first thing was to make sure that the center was secured. So we put officers on both doors going and coming in and out. Second was, was utilize what resources that I had. I had a chaplain crew at the time. So I took used the to tap and crew to be the support for the people that come in. Uh, the next thing was I had to do was establish, get some intel of what was going on at the scene so when people would arrive there, I could greet them with some type of briefing. After George briefed those who came to the center, he directed them to a chaplain for further support. George did what he could to provide information, but answers weren't always available. That... That was hard. It was difficult for the simple fact was, people who were arriving there with blood of their loved ones. And they just wanted to know if they were alive or if they were dead or what. And uh, it was extremely difficult to look people in the face and not have anything for them. So that became my mission, is to establish whatever I could to give them something to make them whole. In that moment, that's what I was going to do. And that's what I did. There were 22,000 people in attendance at the festival that night. In total, the shooting would claim 58 lives and injure hundreds more. Because of the magnitude of the attack, there was no precedent for the work George was doing. So it was fast-track learning. It was to get as much intel and get with the hospitals and get information from the hospitals so we knew which hospitals they were at. 
So when it was CP, we established a line to connect the hospitals to what we were doing. And so we get a list of names. And when, once I got to that list of the names, every hour on the hour, I would make an announcement where they were. Couldn't say what condition they were in. Couldn't tell, um, you know, what had happened to them. But at least I could tell their loved ones where they were. And so that's what I did for 17 hours, was establish that. And along the way, you know, things had to be tweaked. Case in point, we were trying to get information from the hospitals. And in the process of trying to get information from the hospitals, it was inconsistent and it wasn't jiving with the list. So they dispatched officers to the hospitals and they just start handwriting names in the hallway. What's your name? What's your name? People waiting to be seen. Who do you have in there? What's their name? Can they talk? And once we start getting those names, we could give really good information. Eventually, the victim center led by George was replaced by the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, where survivors could receive long-term help and referrals for additional support. Ultimately, uh, from that day to the next, then the Resiliency Center was set up, and it went from our building to the Resiliency Center, who did a fabulous job of managing the families and their people. But... That particular night, that was a long night. About 17 hours after he was called to the staging area, George finally headed home. And when I got home, I just remembered, uh, you know, military training, get home, eat something, go to sleep, get ready to go back to whatever you got to do, whatever you got to do. On part four of Critical Condition. You know, when you work um, in this field, you kind of get used to the idea that you live in people's nightmares. More phone calls came in and realizing, okay, this is a situation where you don't, a backup surgeon is not sufficient. We need all hands on deck. I can tell you the busiest night I had prior to October 1st, I saw 15 activations. We saw a little over 100 that, that night. We swept through the field about two or three times looking for anybody that was hiding or possibly anybody that was uh, a survivor or secondary threats. Looking for anybody that, you know, we haven't found yet. Because, you know, unfortunately there was a lot of people that hid. This has been part three of Critical Condition, a five-part podcast series produced by the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Part four will be available next Tuesday, October 22nd. You can subscribe to the series for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. For more information, visit reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Original reporting for the series was done by me, Shay Johnson, with production and editing by Reed Redmond. You can read my written story at ReviewJournal.com. If you have any comments or questions, please email me at sjohnson at ReviewJournal.com using the subject line, Critical Condition. <laughs>